0: Welcome to the Lessons for Living television program. My name is Bill Santos. Thank you so much for watching. In the jungles of South America, there lives a peculiar creature known as the three-toed sloth. Now, actually named for one of the seven deadly sins, the sloth will spend at least 18 hours each day sleeping, even when awake this lazy creature remains almost motionless. When it does move, its sluggish movements are excruciatingly slow. Being too lazy to indulge in personal grooming, its coarse hair provides a home for two species of blue-green algae, a a cockroach-like moth, and hundreds of beetles. Apparently... The sloth is not anxious about its life, what it shall eat, or what it shall drink, or what it shall put on. One thing is for certain, this lethargic oddity is not in the least concerned with such engaging matters as theology or morality, Now, this is not to condemn the sloth for being unable to do what it was not designed to do, but rather to distinguish the animal kingdom from humankind, which was designed specifically to pursue what the animal kingdom cannot, theology and morality. Aristotle concluded, it is characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, or just and unjust and the like. And in one of the pivotal verses of the entire Bible, we read, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1:27. we are therefore accountable, and understandably curious as to what our relationship to the Almighty should be and, well, to our fellow humans. What does God expect of us and how are we to conduct our affairs among our own kind? Well, from the earliest times, human sacrifices or The slaughter of animals, food offerings, self-mortification were practiced by those generations whose primitive notions caused them to confuse brutality with devotion to gods of various names. Morality, more often than not, was an unwritten code revered as a matter of social preservation, usually differing from tribe to tribe. Religion, it seemed, was little more than smoke from a self-kindled fire. If only there was some standard, if only there was some prescription from the cosmic vacuum, an edict, from the fathomless silence that would help us. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 18. During all this time... "'The people in the valley heard the thundering "'and saw the lightning on the mountain. "'They saw smoke rising from the mountain "'and heard the sound of the trumpet. "'They were afraid and shook with fear. "'They stood away from the mountain and watched. "'Then the people said to Moses, "'If you want to speak to us, then we will listen, "'but please don't let God speak to us. "'If this happens, we will die.' Then Moses said to them, don't be afraid. God has come to test you. He wants you to respect him so that you will not sin. It is against this background that Sinai looms, not just as a mountain, but as something of a, I don't know, massive divine Rosetta stone. And God spoke all these words, saying, And when the thunder and the lightning had subsided and the mountain had ceased smoking, the people of Israel had come into possession of a prescription emblazoned upon stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments appear in the Old Testament as conditions of a covenant between God and his people. According to the scriptures, the finger of God inscribed the commandments on two tablets of stone given to Moses on Sinai. Moses later became enraged at the idolatry of his people, smashed the tablets and engraved them onto another stone tablets. It has long been commented by preachers that the commandments were appropriately carved into stone to prevent them from being bent. They could be broken, but not bent. The Israelites housed the tablets in a wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant, which, in addition to keeping kept in a special place, was carried ahead of Hebrew armies into battle As the sure sign of God's presence. Indeed, the prescription had been given, and this cosmic vacuum had been filled. However, we are still on the train, on the trail of theology and morality, aren't we? As it happens, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. The first table includes the first four commandments which contain a legitimate theology relative to one's service to God, a service to be performed out of a sense of reverence and majesty. One wonders to what extent reverence is still part of the modern experience. Now, I'm not speaking now of the polite nod or, mental tip of the hat, which one solemnly executes in the presence of things which inspire those kinds of gestures, wherever and whatever they may be. I'm speaking of the the kind of reverence which leaves one slack-jawed, awe-inspired, elevated above the ordinary. And some time ago, it was my privilege to visit Westminster Abbey Neither words nor photographs can approximate the sheer space and the beauty so exquisitely synthesized in this grand cathedral. The architecture, the meticulous attention given to the minutest appointments, the incredible vastness which itself proclaims that God is great and God is to be praised. This and much more causes one to realize that God is truly in this place. Moreover, because God was reverenced in the creating of these places of praise, the inherent reverence strikes upon some sublime chord in the soul as we enter those places. Eyes widen to survey every symbolic, inaudible statement. No space is wasted No article unnecessary. Visitors now become worshipers, stepping lightly, speaking in low whispers, kneeling privately in their souls, if not upon some sacred spot. I have thought of this experience many times while observing worshipers entering into other places of worship, continuing conversations which had begun outside, the organ prelude, I fear, is frequently taken to be a background, a pleasant background for the chatter of pre worship conversation. Certainly, the attitude of reverence is not the same. There is more truth than poetry in Robert Louis Stevenson's remark I never weary of great churches. Mankind was never so happily inspired as when it made a cathedral. Now, if the first four commandments contain one service to God as being performed out of a sense of reverence, we can but wonder to what extent reverence is still part of the modern experience. You see, the first table relates to you shall have no other gods before me, do not worship idols, do not take the name of God in vain, And the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. The elaborations here are limitless, but they hinge on the word reverence. Now, the second table is no less demanding as the first four that prescribe service to God. These last six prescribe service to others. Honor your father and your mother do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. Now, perhaps the hinge word here is respect. Without respect for parents, without respect for human life, neighbors, property, truth, achievement, the second table is unintelligible. Lack of respect may be the result of, among other things, ignorance, arrogance, crudeness, or just simply stupidity. Samuel Wilberforce, Bishop of Oxford, once addressed a meeting of a scientific society. Darwin's Origin of the Species had been published the year before and both the learned and the unlearned had bantered the merits and demerits of Darwin's proposition. It was common knowledge that Wilberforce utterly deplored the work and had spoken scathingly of it from the pulpit. The chairman of the Scientific Society instructed Wilberforce to refrain from mes- mentioning the controversial subject in his remarks. It was also pointed out to the good bishop that although Darwin was not present, his good friend Thomas Huxley was. Well, the bishop proceeded to warm to his assigned topic and he waxed eloquent, showing signs of brilliance. In time, however, he began to run short of material and digressed to the theme which he had been asked to avoid. A number of misstatement, reckless accusations, and prejudice-filled outbursts followed. In desperation, perhaps perhaps attempting to seize a place to conclude, he pointed a finger at Huxley and said, I wonder if the learned gentleman in the front of me is willing to be regarded as the descendant of a monkey. And with that, he sat down. His lack of respect for either Darwin or Huxley apparent. Well, there was wild applause. Then the crowd began to chant, Huxley, Huxley. The society wished to hear Huxley's reply. Huxley sat silently, unwilling to be so obviously manipulated, but Finally, Wilberforce, thinking he had rendered Huxley speechless by the power of his eloquence, himself confidently took up the, the chant, Huxley, Huxley, Huxley. Well, Huxley slowly got to his feet. Stoically, he commented then that since it had been brought into this matter, he would confess that If the alternatives were a descent from a respectable monkey or, on the other hand, from a bishop of the Church of England who would stoop to misrepresentations, insulting of man of science who was not present, I declare, he said, in favor of the monkey. There are times when we would be tempted to declare in favor of the monkey. You know, when a large group of people, some of the mothers with babies in their arms, yelled to a young girl atop a water tank, threatening to jump, the crowd encouraged her to jump, and she did. A homemade bomb was exploded in a department store, killing 17 people. The bomb was discharged because a man felt that he had been insulted by a sales clerk the previous day. A man was convicted of inserting pins into Halloween candy and sent to prison. Other prisoners were so sickened by his crime that they beat him to death. A dope peddler was apprehended handing drugs through a chain link fence to grade school children. Two young people brutally beat a 90-year-old couple, then set fire to their house, burning them alive. If given a choice between identifying with certain characters of our kind against the alternative of descending from a respectable monkey, well, there are times when we would incline to agree with Huxley and declare in favor of the monkey. Love is the word we are reaching for. Theologically, there is a greater relationship between God and humanity more than reverence. Morally, there is a greater relationship between ourselves and our fellows than respect. Love is the word we are reaching for. It is inherent in the first four commandments because God first loved us. It is inherent in the remaining six commandments as later simplified by Jesus, love ye one another. Actually, both tables are summarized succinctly in the words, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and strength and mind and thy neighbor as thyself. The rationale is that if we see these two commandments as they are, and we observe them steadfastly, well, it becomes unnecessary to list the others. They would be unthinkable infractions. Ovid, an ancient poet, tells of a gifted young sculptor of Cyprus named, named Pygmalion. Pygmalion despised women and resolved never to marry. Ironically, he set about with hammer and chisel to produce the statue of a woman in order to display it as a mockery. For many days, and frequently well into the night, he chiseled. A form began to emerge which arrested him. The blows from the hammer became softer now. Finesse and devotion occupied his every movement. Beneath his skillful fingers, the figure became more and more beautiful until at last no further improvement could be made. Such grace, such beauty had she, so lifelike was she. She must have a name a name by which he could address her. Galatia would be her name. And she must have a robe and gifts and flowers. Pygmalion had fallen desperately in love with a lifeless piece of marble. He would not pretend. He spoke to her, held her hands in his reached out his heart to the very thing he had created. Such was his continuing, all-giving love that according to Ovid, Pygmalion literally loved the lifeless form of Galatia into a living being. This ancient legend contains a truth greater than itself. It's not theologically inclusive, morally exhaustive, nor perhaps nor even philosophically respectable, but it brings the word for which we have been reaching into closer proximity. God loved his creation into being. We have been made alive, capable of seeking reverence, morality, and loving because God first loved us. The Ten Commandments were not pressed down upon the shoulders of humanity as burdensome restrictions, ideals beyond our capacity to achieve, but were instead gracefully revealed, lovingly prescribed, in order that humanity might know that what may have appeared as a cosmic vacuum is actually a boundless reservoir of love. The fathomless silence eternally shouts from two indelible tablets containing ten statements, paraphrased into two. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thy heart and soul and strength and mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Moses was the mediator of the covenant on Sinai. Christ was the mediator of the covenant on Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The covenant was conceived in love, sealed in love, and sustained in love. But you may say the Ten Commandments were prescribed for an ancient time and are no longer relevant for the 21st century. And besides, has not Christ's law been fulfilled already? Is it not antiquated? Consider the morning newspaper, the 10 o'clock news, the testimony of human experience. Christ has fulfilled the law for us already. It is nowhere implied in scriptures that we are personally exempt from idolatry, swearing, stealing, coveting. In short, reverence and morality have not been rescinded. The South American three-toed sloth is not concerned with such matters as reverence and morality, nor incidentally is a sloth wherever he is found, but thinking people are concerned. There are two tablets. How am I to respond to God who first loved me? And how shall I love my neighbor as myself? Gracefully, they've been given, and through grace, only through grace, can they be observed. I think it was Charlie Brown who once said, I love humanity, it is people I can't stand. Yet the costly love that Jesus embodies involves an intimate encounter with God's fierce and holy love. It involves pouring out self for real people, sinners all, with all their real-life quirks and faults, and smells and flesh and blood sins. That, that harried young mother in the doctor's room, in the waiting room there, or maybe in the pew in your church next to you, perhaps loving her as yourself means offering to watch the toddler while she feeds the baby. That person in line at the bank who's stumbling over the English language and struggling to understand deposits and withdrawals. Could loving him mean stepping out of line and and helping them to get it straight? The next door neighbor struggling to keep his marriage together. That daughter who pushes your buttons every 10 minutes. That husband scared of being laid off. These are the ones who desperately need the strong, saving love, the compassion, the mercy, the challenge and holiness and presence of Jesus Christ. In those moments, dare to risk being rebuffed or inconvenience. Dare to look foolish and make mistakes. Dare to love God and that person even if it wrings your heart with pain to do so. It's what we have been created, redeemed, and commanded to do. Hang your whole life on love. For the truth is, it's God's love, active in us. And his love will never fail. Let's pray. Gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We ask for your grace and your mercy and the power of your Holy Spirit that in our living, we may demonstrate to you a reverence and a love and to our fellow man, love beyond all understanding. Father, please bless each and every viewer, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come to that time in our program where we have our special offer. Uh, We are offering, I think it's the very first time for this book here. It is called Fake News, How Satan's Lies Are Deceiving Millions. We'd love to send this book to you as a gift from Lessons for Living Television. How do you request your copy? pay close attention to the information we're about to provide you.
1: To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living Television website www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living Television website www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030 Simcoe Conland Post Office Oshawa Ontario. L1G 0A3, that's Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conland Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you could order this offer by calling our 1-800 number at 1-800-972-0337.
0: Well, thank you so much for watching our program. We've come to the end, but just before we go, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Our website, l4ltv.com. All of our programs are accessible there. If you have a friend or a family member that lives outside of the area where we broadcast, refer them to the website, and they can follow all of our programs. Follow me on Instagram, Sanchels underscore Bill. Every morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, I put out a one-minute devotional video. You can have access to that. Hey, subscribe to our YouTube page. Like our Facebook page. Uh, within a little while, uh, this program will be available, in audio version on SoundCloud. You can download and take that with you. Check all of those out. Remember also to visit our MissionNowCanada.com website. That is the humanitarian work that we do overseas. Interesting stuff. Maybe you can join us on an upcoming mission trip. We are rapidly running out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to do this again next time. We hope you'll be here with us. Till then, God bless you. We'll see you back here.